Promise No Promises Feminism Under Corona Episode 6 There's More Than One Community The podcast Promise No Promises now continues with a special Feminism Under Corona chapter. Over the next few months, 10 episodes arise from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different artistic disciplines and areas of research and life practice. Beyond simple answers or solutions, this series of personal conversations is an attempt to point out different directions, feelings, expectations, sequels and individual stories in times of the recent crisis provoked by COVID-19. It is also a tool for a collectively inhabited feminism, where not only gender, class and race imbalances are being reinforced, but are even becoming more visible in the current situation. The sixth episode is based on a conversation with Australian-born and New York-based writer and scholar Mackenzie Wark, who is known for her writings on critical theory and new media. She is the author of numerous books, including A Hacker Manifesto, Gamer Theory, and Capital is Dead. Is this something worse? Her latest book, Reversed Cowgirl, has been published by Simeotext in 2020. What if you were trans and did not know it? You have some hole in your life and do not even know why it is there. You go through days, years, not knowing why you only feel at home in your body in peak moments of drugs and sex. You distract yourself to avoid an absence, a hole in being. These lines appear on the back cover of Reverse Cowgirl by McKinsey Wark. Somehow, reading books starts always in reverse. We turn them over with our hands, looking for answers in advance on the back cover. However, Reversed Cowgirl is not a book made to satisfy questions, not even those of the author herself regarding her own biography. Mackenzie Wark herself defines it as an auto-ethnography. In another text she says that ethnography begins at home. She states that there are many ways of not being at home at home. Reverse Cowgirl's porn ethos expands beyond its sexually explicit content. It appears in the reader's desire to know more, to read chapters that are not have been published yet, and perhaps not even written by the author either. The following conversation with Mackenzie Work does not provide a continuation of Reverse Cowgirl. It actually starts with her reflection on Marx, briefly mentioned with the excuse of her current nickname on Twitter, Chica Marx. Her critique of capitalism is at the same time a critique of the concepts that the critique of capitalism itself constantly produces. Concepts are really powerful, but their function is kind of secondary to the things one needs a concept of, is a statement by Mackenzie that I heard in one of her many lectures that can be found on the internet, a place where class struggle is updated and mutated, resulting in the division of a vectoral class and the hacker class. What kind of economy produces information that is turned into a commodity? How can we call the system we live in, which in fact parasites our bodies individually and collectively in order to expand and to survive? To what extent are theory and practice compelled to meet and fit into each other? Neoliberal capitalism is a concept that Mackenzie defines as redundant. 
Terms such as radical feminism or radical left nowadays also seem to feel redundant. The current insistence on the widespread use to the term radical everywhere speaks to the opposite. A takeover of social movements by capitalism and a de-radicalization of their struggles at the moment they become part of mainstream politics. And yet, the concepts are still necessary and useful for understanding the kind of society we inhabit. It doesn't matter that they are supposed to be forever or timeless, but that they are useful for a while, as Mackenzie says. Just the same as the struggles in which many concepts and many anonymous bodies are involved in are extremely important. And it is important to remember them and to take them into account. When we think about the concept of feminism, it only becomes obsolete, even violent and discriminatory, when there is no recognition of the enormous differences between bodies and the lives lived by those bodies. Access to life is not guaranteed for everyone equally. Going unnoticed is a privilege that not everyone has. Feminism too, when it is not intersectional, is in danger of producing oppressive and exclusionary paradigms. The woman, a figure thought of and written in the singular with capital letters, is one of them. Our conversation took place in mid-September. Mackenzie was in New York and I was in Berlin. The pandemic, which has been going on for several months, continues to increase inequalities between people. Its effects are more devastating to some lives than to others, stressing the inequality between individuals and groups within our society. Capitalism needs our bodies to be healthy and functioning in order to be able to continue working for it. But it does not offer the same support to all people. Race, class and gender are some of the many elements to consider when we think about health. Health also means having access to health. However, it is also true that past struggles for better and more accessible health systems provide experiences and strategies from which we can learn in the present. This pessimistic spirit in thinking about the future was nevertheless accompanied by a certain festive spirit thanks to the emergence of nightlife and dance culture during our conversation. Mackenzie, who experienced firsthand the development of dance culture shortly after its emerge in the late 1980s and during the 1990s, has only recently returned to techno-dancing. The genealogy, bodies and culture that techno-music produces are different from those of other music realities. In fact, Each type of music shows that there's not one homogenous dance community, but many communities made up of different bodies and experiences. The same applies to feminism. We should never forget that there's always more than one community and that communities exist in continuous transformation and differences. I'm not the most orthodox of Marxists. It's a particular tradition, intellectual tradition linked to the labor movement, to which I remain loyal, well, in solidarity with for my whole life. That's the intellectual space. There is a kind of version of Marxists that are obsessively reread the, like the founding texts. 
uh, if you haven't read Das Kapital a hundred times and sort of annotated it and stuff. It's like, I don't think of it like that at all. I, I think it's going on two centuries worth of intellectual tradition that's taken those founding insights in all sorts of other directions. So to me, it's much more interesting to think of it as a kind of living, breathing thing rather than to be continually going back to the Old Testament, so to speak. I don't know why it became such a kind of hagiographic and scholastic enterprise. To me, it's a living thing. There's a couple of things there. and One would be that it's maybe not the best way to make concepts to be just adding modifiers to the existing ones that you already have. We've had a century now of capitalism modified. At what point does capitalism itself become a new thing? That seems to me the question that needs asking. And then you quickly find there's a kind of theological reason that capitalism remains the thing, as if it was eternal. And on the one hand, for those who love it, it is eternal and it goes on forever because it's the end stage of history. And for those who hate it, it can only be superseded by communism. So if you have not achieved that perfect state, then this, by definition, is capitalism. So it's like, wait, because another thing that's never happened has not happened, that's the situation on which the definition of this thing exists. It's not really a concept, that's a kind of belief. It's a theology. So not very helpful. There have been attempts to think stages of history differently and that maybe this was already not capitalism. They tend to be caught up in a kind of Cold War discourse because the communist states seem to have the best narrative where they actually had a future, they were going somewhere. So we got, you know, the post-industrial society or Rostow's conditions for takeoff and all sort of other ways to sort of rethink how this isn't capitalism anymore, but it's better. I found it all unsatisfactory as well. So the proposition is, well, what if this isn't capitalism anymore? It's something worse. So how would we think a kind of stage of history that had superseded capitalism and where we would need to rethink where we are. So that's what I was kind of doing with that. Why not proliferate concepts and see which ones stick? Concepts can be temporary things. We don't have to have them forever. I quite like Legacy Russell's glitch feminism. Whether it sticks or not, it's not really up to any of us individually. It's just sort of collectively whether that has purchase. Maybe it'll work for a week or a year or forever. Like, it doesn't matter. One sort of explores the potential of language in a certain direction, sees what it does and moves on. Theory and practice never line up. There is no unity of theory and practice. That actually never happens. And it was more of a conceptual and practical error to think that it ever would. And it's actually the difference between theory and practice is what's useful. But it's kind of like, where does one encounter the other? And where is the friction interesting and useful and productive? And I think that as someone who, I'm not an activist, I'm a writer. But it's when you, having to think in the temporality of social movements is the way to do that. So you, yeah, I'm, I'm only a kind of a joiner of social movements. I don't have any leading abilities whatsoever. I don't. <laughs> That's the other thing. Theorists should really not overestimate their abilities in that regard. Actually organizing things is a whole other abilities and skills. How do you think in the temporality of social movements? And in the United States, that would be the re-emergence of Black Lives Matter over the summer. It's very important to sort of think in terms of abolition and how does the call for abolition impact feminism in the 21st century? 
tricky concepts like family abolition, which you really have to put through the filter of how that is inflected in different ways in terms of race. How do you think the key parts of the agenda for feminism, if you start to put, in the American context, black lives at the centre of it, or analogously, those of the undocumented. We're dealing with the story right now of some detention centre that performs some phenomenal number of hysterectomies. This still needs to be investigated. It seems like it actually happened. There are questions as to why. It was this entirely racist thing to prevent undocumented women from the South from being able to reproduce. Highly likely, that's one of the explanations. Another, need not conflict, was just a money-making thing. I hear these people who could not speak English, could not defend their rights, who have been detained. You can get paid to perform a whole bunch of surgeries, and you can take your pick as to which of those is a more grotesque explanation for what may just have happened. But what are the leading lights of American feminism talking about at the moment? Actually, not that. So maybe it's a moment when the temporality of social movements, and in this case, things to do with the rights of the undocumented, the rights of black and brown women, that temporality needs to come back into thinking through theoretical things so that we're actually grounded in the real struggles of women's lives. And I'm only using the states as the context because it's the one I know a little bit about, but if you think about reproductive rights only in terms of abortion, then you're missing things that are very key for Indigenous women, for example. We're having family at all is you're up against all sorts of institutional obstacles to even do that. And this is not to downplay the importance of abortion at all. And obviously all women should have access to that, just to be very clear about it. But there are some populations for which that's not the, even the key reproductive rights issue at the moment. And so one would need to put it in that context. It's hard to generalise given the, you're talking about a hundred odd years of many different movements that overlap and diverge from each other. I think one of the big challenges to feminism in the United States was to sort of process questions of race, that what were taken as kind of universal ways of thinking about patriarchy didn't actually particularly appeal to black women in particular, women in, in colour more generally. And also tend to very class-blind, those privileging of issues that matter to middle-class women and white women that aren't necessarily the part of the agenda. There's, there's actually like two ways something like the status of trans women becomes problematic. And the, the actually more interesting one is trans women are broke and you know often completely excluded from regular wage work and much more likely to be doing sex work much more likely to be victims of domestic violence much more likely to be homeless you're dealing with populations that are incredibly marginalized and i remember going to a event organized by black trans women and the political agenda was the right not to die it was that kind of fundamental <laughs> so it's like we're not talking about the glass ceiling or you know like microaggressions in the workplace and I don't want to discount those things as unimportant but in a scale of things maybe not the most important if you were to really highlight the most oppressed populations and there's a way in which trying to focus on the most oppressed populations is actually the path to thinking universality the point at which someone is under all of the thumb is the point at which you kind of discover the structure of power in its totality. There's kind of a point to be looking at what happens to uh, like trans women rather than this being this 
you know, obviously very tiny population that's very marginal. It's actually a way to think the universality of whatever patriarchy allied with racism and capitalism is really like. A more pressing and more useful way to think how does sort of the challenge of trans women reverberate through feminism. The one that's more of an intellectual project that requires some unpicking is the extent to which feminism ended up relying on a kind of essentialism of the body. It's one thing to be interested in the politics of bodies, but to do that, you actually need to think about the techniques and institutions through which we perceive them and interact with them and so on. Pull out some sort of essence of the feminine body and make that the basis of an intellectual project turns out I really think to have been misguided in a lot of ways. It turns out to leave out a lot of women's bodies and not just trans women. You're leaving out disabled women, women who can't or don't want to reproduce and hence are not focused on reproductive issues as fundamental to defining femininity and so on. And, and you end up also then trying to craft an image of the ideal female subject and how she would comport herself in the world. And that's not going to work for everybody as well. There are reasons women of colour might present themselves very differently but might still be feminists, you know. <laughs> there are reasons that trans women often really dive pretty deep into performing femininity I don't that much. I have a lot of sisters who do. But firstly, it just helps you be comfortable in your own body. And cis women often don't have to do that. But also, for a lot of people, being able to pass on the street is safety. Like, you're much safer if you're performing, you know, sort of standard. It's kind of a privilege to not adhere to a gender in some ways. To be in a place where you can walk down the street and not fit into one of two categories. Obviously, it's kind of dangerous to then fit into one of those two categories as well. To be identifiable as a woman has its dangers on the street as well. But in a lot of ways, to be that but not quite is even more dangerous. If trans women are being femme, it's about them. It's about what they need. It's not necessarily in dialogue with cis women at all. As for why some feminists are transphobic. I don't give a rat's ass. I really couldn't care less. That's for cis women to figure out. Leave us the fuck alone. Or if you want to be our friends, it's like being friends with anybody else. <laughs> it really just isn't all that different. Just don't be an asshole and, <laughs> and we'll talk to you. It's really pretty simple. I think it's kind of important for trans women, and particularly for trans feminism, to really not be too obsessed with people who hate us. There's a way in which identity formation can work negatively. And there are a lot of social media, particularly young trans women, get kind of obsessed with how much we're hated. And it's like, get used to it. <laughs> it's not going to go away anytime soon. Like, you really do have to create spaces where that's not uh, an issue where, and where you're not then exclusively in, in communities that are only trans, you know, like I find the other bits of the world that'll work for you. There's also a bit of a border in the queer world as well. 
uh, which can also be transphobic. There are ways in which that's not always the most comfortable place either. So we do need our own spaces and our own community, but you don't want to get trapped in them either. You don't want to turn them into a kind of retreat because then we all turn on each other, and that's also bad. And because his name came up, that would be the huge admirer of Paul Preciado's work. But there is a way in which kind of collapses transness into queerness. And I think sometimes we need to separate those things out a little bit because it's a lot of pressure to always be the kind of radical, queer, avant-garde, pressing all the boundaries and challenging everything and in between. Honey, it's too much pressure. <laughs> just, just let us be ordinary. Like the other path is the right to be ordinary is kind of the other side to that, I think. There's a way in which there's nothing like being a middle-class white man to give you confidence to take on the world. And I was that middle-class white man for a long time. It like really did come easy. Also, like a turf criticism, you were socialised as male. It's like, yeah, I was. It's great. You should try it. You know, <laughs> let me teach you. Let me teach you. That is, in fact, part of what I'm teaching. I'm teaching a lot of queer and non-white trans and cis women students. And one of the things I would dearly love to be able to imbue is just that sense of confidence you're probably still gonna fuck up but if you approach it with some confidence you'd be surprised sometimes people don't need it to be excellent they just need it to be done and so if you like step up and have a shot at it you're a fucking hero or heroine anyway so you didn't need to be like a genius and really well trained you just need to give the aura that something would be taken care of and that's the gig There are ways there are probably sides of the class or white or masculine virtues of that that I would not want to universalise into other people at all, right? There are things about that that are also pretty toxic and awful. I think that's a sort of interesting pedagogic problem to think through. It's like, yeah, what are the elements of that that would be really great for people who don't have that to be able to acquire? And so you could just sort of go into your life. A thing I do, I was at a rave to go hear some really hard techno and a trans woman I know is talking about a book project and I'm just like, all right, let me sit you down right now. This is like pounding beats. We maybe we're not necessarily in our right mind either. I'm like, all right, here's how you write a book proposal. You do this, you do that, you do that. You already have the sample chapter because I read it on your blog. But the thing I'm trying to get over is that lack of confidence. This was somebody who I know can do this and has done truly extraordinary things in her life just to survive and given half a shot will write a great book, but has n never had access, even as someone in this case, racist as a white male up to a certain age, not able to crash through that barrier to just put it out there. I went back to to rave culture after a 20-year leave of absence, which was kind of hilarious. It was something I used to do in the 90s. And after I transitioned, my trans mom is a raver. 
And I was sort of saying, you know, oh yeah, I used to really like really hard beats because I, there's something about the abstractness of it I felt very at home in. I'll dance to anything, but I feel like there's some musics that are not actually made for my body. They assume, they assume heterosexuality for one thing. I love gay disco, but it kind of assumes a body I don't have. Uh, yeah, somehow techno always kind of worked and she's like, oh honey, you're coming to a rave this weekend. Like <laughs> within half an hour, I was back, bitches. I'm like, yes, I found my people again. I made myself popular by just sort of, I didn't mean to do this, but I just say, well, I think this is better than it was back in the day because everybody looks back to the, there's always some golden age that everybody has missed, right? And it's like, yeah, well, I was there. Like I went to Berlin in those days, but I actually think this is better. Like you sort of refined it. At least the people I'm around are not getting quite as high. You can actually stay upright and functional and use all of the technologies available with a little more discretion, a little more art. The beats were great, the light was great, the space was organized without excess too, which is the thing I like about techno. There is a kind of our temporary world that can come together. It's never perfect and one ought not to romanticize it too much. There's always somebody who's gonna be annoying and there are always people who have a bad time and who don't. For whom it's actually an alienating experience, yeah? My feet aren't so great anymore, so I'm like sitting on the sideline with all of like the sad wallflower boys, their backpacks still on their back. And they're all like, if, if you got any spare molly? And I'm like, honey, it's not about the drugs. Just get up and dance. And but they won't take my advice. They're just sitting there being alone. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. It doesn't work for everybody. But I mean, thinking about a lot, I think I'll probably teach again about techno house and rave together. And, and particularly in the States, it's worth re-emphasizing the black roots of both those cultures. Techno is sort of pretty straight and has this particular history in Detroit black culture. It's the music that came out of people's basements and it was different to certain other things that were going on. And there's this sort of class specificity to it. And the house is black gay music from Chicago, yeah. And one tends to sort of lose that at some point. And there's a, what um, Frankie Hutchinson called business techno took over the planet. There are all these festivals and labels and stuff that don't book any black acts that sort of pretend that never happened. And they pretend it all started in Berlin. Berlin was kind of fabulous from my glancing acquaintance with it, but this actually came from somewhere else. There are people who go for the dancing and people who go for other reasons. And I like little places where people actually kind of know how to handle themselves. And it's not like just a Saturday night out, but it can be a kind of transcendent kind of experience in some ways. Like I think that's valid. But yeah, it's better to be with people who are there. The parties I was going to before COVID, yeah, some people really dress up for it, but some don't. Like some people are really in athletic gear because they're going to be out there dancing for five or six hours. You've got two water bottles strapped to you, you know. <laughs> You're like little little purse around your waist, so like you're going to lose your bag. Nothing in coat check. <laughs> it's kind of hardcore. And, and, you know, this is the reason to have those shoes with the four-inch soles, because you're like, doof, doof, doof. You're on your feet for hours. So there's that, and then there are some people for whom appearing is part of it. And there's another kind of party goer where to be fabulous is the thing that's required. I really love that too. You came to be this fabulous version of yourself and I get to witness that. I'm not gonna do it. I'll phone in the makeup a little bit, but you really made an effort and I appreciate it, honey. And I'll show that by looking at you, but not touching unless it's invited, you know, you know what I mean? There's ways, but then yeah, there are people who 
sort of mistake it for a date night. Good party's not really that. There are people who will be on their phone on the dance floor and it's like, just no. <laughs> there are people taking pictures. Do not take pictures. The problem with all these things is whenever you find that little sweet spot where it all works, everybody else wants to get in it, but then they're not gonna follow those little codes. So that tends to like tip it over into something else. I mean, my favorite New York party is very strictly no photo. Some of the younger people don't do that. There've been a few like um, illegal street parties. The other thing is that most of these are in New York or in illegal venues. So there's like a really good reason not to be taking pictures because you don't want to get the venue in trouble if it does have a license to be something else. The police follow certain people's Instagram and they'll show up when they see it. Like it's just stupid. It's bad community behavior. The younger people I noticed kind of went back to documenting themselves, like even at the illegal street parties. But you just don't post the pictures till a week later. You know, you got to like hold off a little bit. It's like a little game. Best we can manage in New York at the moment is like a, the parking lot behind Ikea. The thing was interesting about the particular slice of and I never lived there, it was just like glancing encounters with... The thing about Berlin is the wall had come down, but nobody knew who owned all of this real estate. So the East was this weird anomalous zone in the kind of corporate city, yeah? And it was going to take some time to sort out who owned what. And I think the authorities took a fairly enlightened view, because they've been like fought to a standstill by squatters over and over again. And so they're like, all right, certain buildings are going to be used for purposes that are not strictly legal but the people doing it have a vested interest in the buildings not burning down. They have a vested interest in it being a habitable space. You go into these weird spaces to find little parties in the middle of nowhere. It can only ever be temporary and the whole thing, nightclub life got put on an industrial basis in Berlin. And it's now essentially, as far as I can tell, the main tourist attraction of the whole city. It's kind of a different deal altogether. When you're being led by your friends into the medium strip of a freeway, and there's like a service stair that goes down and then you're in what appears to be the men's room of an abandoned subway station, you know, and like there's a weird sound coming out of it. And there's only one brand of beer on sale, which is why do you need to drink anyway? <laughs> the visual entertainment is Nazi era comedies with the sound off upside down, some shit. I'm sort of like inventing some details or mushing them together from different clubs, but that's the sort of thing. Or you're in a stable that has a pounded earth floor kind of thing that's 300 years old, but it's a club. That to me was glancing encounters with Berlin and other European cities. But Berlin was special because of that sense of no one quite knew what some of this real estate was about. It's not unlike what I see happening in New York because there's so much of the city that's like jug space. No one really knows what it's for and no one really cares. The developers haven't landed on it yet. There are spaces you could kind of repurpose before COVID hit. It's going to be bad for a while, I think, and the United States has decided to handle it in the worst way possible, as far as I can tell, and where a lot of this is going to fall on communities of colour, who are often, it turns out, doing essential work. Where I live in northern Queens is majority Hispanic, and as people in service industries, and but also who are living like 20 people in a small apartment, because the rents are ridiculous. So that makes it very hard to not spread it. It's not to do with culture, any of this nonsense. It's to do with class, yeah? Why certain communities are vulnerable. It's like you have to work, but then you're also living in very close proximity to others. And they're trying to reopen the schools, which is on the one hand crazy, but on the other hand, completely necessary. 
given that the people this puts most pressure on obviously is women who are usually in charge of care of children. You kind of need to send them to school. The crazy thing about New York is feeding a lot of children is a responsibility of the schools. So if the public schools aren't open, kids aren't getting meals because there's a free breakfast and free lunch. And they're trying to deliver it at the, the doorstep, but that's not worked very well. It's putting pressure in terms of both class and race on populations that are already very vulnerable. We don't really have good infrastructure to deal with any of this. I have the luxury of not having to send my kids to school and also the luxury of being able to work from home and still make money. So far, so good. I've lost my job. But a lot of people are not in that situation. And the federal government has decided not to come to the rescue anymore. The city and state are broke. It's going to get desperate, frankly. And the so-called leader of the free world has been shown to have really eviscerated any capacity to govern or organise that it may once have claimed to have. It's a strategy to make public systems dysfunctional so people want private systems. And then once people are in the private system, then you discover it's like it's basically some monopoly that's profit-oriented and it's going to be worse anyway. I think there's a kind of repeated pattern of that. You know, we had a reasonably good social medicine system in Australia when I left it. You just had like a little card the size of a credit card. You just like go to the doctor and ka-ching, like $4 copay. And most other stuff was covered. And it was actually a private, public, you know, complicated system underneath, under the hood. But you could go to any doctor, basically. And we're kind of losing the beginnings of that with this undermining it to make people desire something else. And of course, the United States had never even quite arrived. It never really even got to that point. So I have reasonably good healthcare cover through my employer, but a lot of people don't. And even when you have public systems, the thing is, it ought to be a kind of universal system, but it's sort of not. So you get the phenomena of, for example, black women not being believed about their symptoms and being sent home with really serious illnesses because they're, they're treated as if they're faking or something, or should just bear more pain than other people do. Even when you have a social medicine system, you're working within it to reject those sorts of things. In Britain, technically, trans healthcare is covered, but the waiting list can be ridiculously long, like stretching for years. And you're talking about people who are often suicide risk because of dysphoria. So like you're basically inviting people to kill themselves before their number comes up. It's better to have socialised medicine, but then the struggles inside that for those sort of equity issues, including how women are treated. There's a few threads to that. And one is that why was the state invested in healthcare in the first place? And it sort of has to do with Foucault's concept of biopower. At what point is the state still remains centrally interested in who it has the right to kill. But states then also want a healthy and viable labour force. The state wants healthy and viable bodies for military service, invests in the production of certain kinds of bodies. And I think particularly after, for a lot of countries after World War II, like literally physically reproducing the population became state policy. Or in a settler state like Australia, it was populating a continent to preserve it from invasion. So the state gets invested in the quality of the humans that it's managing. Of course, not all humans. It's not interested in indigenous humans in that case, right? 
so there's sort of the problem there's the state's involvement in the management of our bodies on the one hand has that side of it and that sort of your Foucault filter on it but the other is that access to these things was something that labor movements struggled for and partly achieved before labor movements started to lose their power in the 70s so I think one needs a few different lenses and to see these parts of the social apparatus is kind of always complicated and the struggle is internal to them as to which aspects of them you can move forward. It's tempting to see whatever it is, you know, like power or capital or whatever is like an essence that goes through everything, which is sort of only ever partly true. Like I think the social reality is always much more hybrid and complicated than that and the product of struggle. So you can see the social management of the body as at one and the same time to do with reproducing capital, to do with states wanting populations for armies and to be labor, also as a victory of the labor movement. And also partly a victory of various strands of feminism, that women have the right to control their bodies is the thing that a lot of states started to recognize. Now, obviously it's not completely recognized. You could go get an abortion or go get birth control. Your pregnancy will be safe. The state has to be made to live up to a promise about those things is politics. We're not very good at pandemics, it turns out. I mean, the last one that affected significant parts of the West, there are other ones, of course, was Spanish flu, and that was actually 100 years ago. Very little's ever said about it. Historians have been talking about the amnesia around it, that people didn't want to talk about it. It's probably what killed my grandfather. Like He lingered on for a couple of years after my father was born. I think my own grandfather died of complications from Spanish flu from World War I. And I think that's probably a common story, but it's not, they're not stories that are told because it wasn't an honourable death. If you died from a war injury, that would be the story, but you died because you got the flu in the war, that's not a, a story you're going to tell anybody. And in fact, even the building I'm in, these garden apartments in this part of northern Queens, were built after Spanish flu and partly designed around airflow and all sorts of things. You can see how it had an effect. The gay community has some knowledge about the HIV pandemic, which is, of course, ongoing, but ways both culturally and institutionally of managing that had to be invented, and there's knowledge of that. And the analogy is not a close one. I don't want to say this is like that pandemic too much. But there are ways you can learn from that, and learning about harm reduction, shaming people doesn't help, demanding people disclose status is never a good idea. These are just things not to do. Harm reduction is very important. Like just sort of yelling at people for behaving badly doesn't work. But if you create situations where on a percentage basis, most people are behaving in ways that won't spread a contagion, that's an improvement. And you're just trying to reduce that number statistically rather than single out every individual who might be behaving badly. It's sort of not the way to go about it. So there are things to learn from that. And that that was handled well and badly in different parts of the world. Like the Australian response to HIV was mostly fairly good. Like the state service providers sort of jumped in and thought about, all right, we have to learn from the community. And we have to learn that there's more than one community. Like we have to start learning about people's practices in a respectful way so that we know how to intervene and how to identify people who need help. Whereas in the States that didn't really happen so much at all and a generation was left to die. We're seeing that same pattern of different responses, responding in part to different levels of ability to organise politically around the politics of contagion.
I am working on a sequel to Reverse Cowgirls. The thing is that my theory books sell much better than my porn book. I don't know what that says or how I should take that, but <laughs> Reverse Cowgirl didn't do that well. But it was the most fun to write, and I'm proud of being able to work in a different genre and sort of write autofiction. And also sort of tell a story I thought was a little bit... It's not completely lacking, but gets less emphasis in literature, of, in trans literature. Those of us who are the quote-unquote autogynophiles uh, like the bad trans was for a long time like people like me back in the day would not have been able to get into gender transition programs because we were sort of like filthy perverts who had like had some fetishistic relation to femininity so I would have been excluded from it I didn't even know like the transition was an option to me until fairly late in my life so I wanted to write something that it's like well you know what if that's your life you might not be trans but also you might that could be an option for how you figure out how to deal with your body in the world I'm a little ambivalent, though, about people now contact me and say, oh, your book helped me transition. I'm kind of a little ambivalent about that because, like, it will also fuck your life. And I don't necessarily want to have any responsibility for people making those choices. It's like that whole your body, your choice means your choice. It's not on me that you did it. I want that one to come back on me. I have tried to write more in that vein because the thing about becoming a trans woman is that you then automatically become even more of an eccentric than you already were. So writing is the sort of unmarked subject that gets to write theory is no longer possible and probably shouldn't be done anyway. So one's writing necessarily becomes more situated. It's a critique Preciado actually makes of certain Franco-Italian intellectual Marxists. They never really talk about that stuff. They want to talk about cognitive capitalism. They don't really talk about how they're getting off. That never occurs anywhere in the writing. And it's like, there's something like something missing there, maybe. I actually didn't know I was going to transition when I started the book. I didn't rewrite the first part of it that much. There's sort of like a break and a second part, which is only the beginning of transition. There's sort of like two voices in it, in a sense. There's like the end of an old self that's sort of starting to know itself fairly well, I think. And the beginnings of one that's actually kind of naive. It's sort of like a naive early transition part that happens towards the end there. And I sort of wanted to pick up that voice in the second book and see where that goes like a little bit later. Morgan M. Page, who's sort of trans mother to certain people who were my trans mothers or big sisters, says you shouldn't write about trans shit till five years into it. And I broke that rule. <laughs> but I kind of think it's interesting to have a naive, querulous, not quite sure sensibility as well as that more knowing retrospective sense of... There's a way in which memoirs are always retrospective and they make the story seem like it makes more sense than it actually does. I wanted the story to have a sort of a slightly strange quality of like, oh, okay, I, I sort of get your deal with this weird fetishistic sexuality of yours. And it's like, wait, and you did what? You know, and then the book goes off in a slightly different direction in the last part of it. You see a kind of uh, acceleration of that shift of power towards those who control the vector. You control the copyright patent supply chain, the logistical flow of information and goods turned out to be the thing that class power is most based on in our era. 
more so than previous eras. And to me, that's kind of distinctive and it's maybe a thing beyond capitalism because the economics of it seem really quite weird. Uh, like a lot of it's based on completely free flow of information, for example. You can modify it at a more abstract level, a kind of free flow of information that people will just generate for you without even getting paid for it. It's like, what kind of economy is that? They're weird economies to scale with information as well. The temporality of it is different. Producing information as a job is different to producing most other things. It's hard to make a routine, but then boy, are they trying to make that as routine as possible. It struck me that all of those things are novel and it's kind of accelerated because these turn out to be powerful ways to control a population disrupted by pandemic. And partly because we're all forced back into our homes. Most of the small business owners I know are probably going to lose their businesses. In New York, there isn't really much support for that. All the venues are shut and a lot of them will never come back. They're going to be replaced by Starbucks. You can afford to wait it out. There's a kind of consolidation of power at the most abstract level. If it's even over in two years, I'm naturally pessimistic. That's the other thing is who has the capacity to mass manufacture a vaccine, even if there is one? That's in the hands of very particular industrial complexes in particular parts of the world. And ones you might not expect, Brazil, incidentally, has a huge capacity to manufacture vaccines because that's where a lot of that manufacturing went. Brazil is vaccine superpower. Like, that doesn't think it could happen. Like, I'm not an expert in any of that. But I, one thing I notice is how does a crisis redistribute forms of power based on what you have capacities in? This is one of those interesting times. There were other pandemics besides this one, a parallel to it. So yeah, we get a little focused on this being a thing that'll be over in a year. And of course, I hope it is, but it's not a thing that we can count on. What becomes of aesthetics in that era is maybe too big a topic the time we have left. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut du Souche, a joint venture with Grazina Kulczyk and the Art Stations Foundation CH. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch, that's institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Instituto Sush is part of Museum Sush, an initiative by ArtStations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. More information on museumsush.ch. That's museumsush.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing, Elena Cesar. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research team, Alice Wilke and Marion Ritzmann. 
Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Copyright by Institut Kunst, HGK, FHNW and Institut du Susch, Artstations Foundation CH 2020.